G'day guys, welcome back to another Crypto Catch-Up. I'm joined by Pav and Bloomberg analyst Jamie Coots. Jamie, welcome back to the show, mate. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, Jamie, this is your second time on the show. Would you be able to give us a little refresher on your role at Bloomberg and what that entails? Yeah, sure. So uh, Bloomberg Intelligence is the research arm within the organization. So most people are familiar with Bloomberg and Bloomberg News, but Bloomberg software is, is pretty pervasive throughout the financial industry. And within the organization, other than selling the technology and data, we have this research arm, Bloomberg Intelligence. And this has been around for sort of like 10 years and it's grown to about 300 people now. So it's pretty large, like in terms of its sort of footprint, it would probably be in one of the sort of top five or six brokerages in terms of the research department. A little bit different from brokerage research, though. We don't have a financial license, so we don't explicitly provide sort of buy, hold, sell recommendations, but provide outlooks on asset classes or industries that we cover. I look at crypto markets, and I've been in this role now for two years. I came on board really to start developing valuation models for the crypto assets. So I've really focused on Bitcoin and Ethereum at the moment because they obviously make up such a large part of the market and yeah, arguably the institutional grade assets of the space. But the idea is really to expand that research coverage into the other infrastructure plays like the L1s and L2s. Yeah. So you mentioned last time you were on the podcast, there was a demand for a crypto analyst and, and content at Bloomberg. Is this still the case given the, the bear market that's played out over the last couple of years? Yeah. I mean, readership for the content is still tracking really well, but obviously the interest, broadly speaking, it has died down this year. This year has been quiet. You can see that in the volumes. There's a lot of talk and speculation specifically around regulations and for good reason. And that may have quietened down some of the the interest, but really what we're seeing under the surface is this sort of long-term structural uh, demand for exposure to the asset class. We can talk about obviously what's happening with the ETFs, which is you know very meaningful. But even though volumes are down, activity is down, generally you know what we're seeing under the surface whether it's from institutions who are involved in the payment space, stablecoins, for example, and integrations with Web3, or whether it's you know the asset manager, the investment side of the business and the service and the sell side that service them, they're all building out products. They're all building out capabilities in the space. So it's really a function of really the macro environment, which remains to be pretty sanguine at the moment. Yeah. So it's just a, you know, it's just a function of more so the interest rate and macro liquidity environment. Yeah, cool. You mentioned there the macro environment's super, you know, topical right now. I know it's something that Pav and I discuss a lot on the podcast. If you were to barbecue, how would you simply explain like why the US Fed matters to the crypto market? Well, everything still starts and finishes with money supply. And the Federal Reserve has the ability to adjust interest rates, which is effectively the price of money, right? The price of the most important commodity of all money. Uh, is set by the Federal Reserve, obviously for US rates, and that has a knock-on effect globally. So really it, it has and will continue to play a very instrumental role. And it's really not just crypto, it's all risk assets, right? So we see correlations between crypto and other asset classes, other risk assets move in tandem, those correlations narrow and widen over time. But generally, when you see significant changes in interest rates, the price of money, as I'd call it, as well as the money supply, which is not entirely down to the Federal Reserve, because most money is actually created through the banking system, but they have a outsized impact on what happens within you know credit creation. So that quantity of money factor really does stem from the Federal Reserve as well. And then you've obviously got all the central banks playing their part for a composite of global liquidity, global rates. And so it's incredibly important 
I'm not sure how to tie that back to your analogy of a barbecue, but um, <laughs> without the gas, you can't barbecue. And really, yeah. that's that's great. I think you've nailed it. Yeah, I think that's it. On that same topic, obviously, we've seen a couple of crypto cycles since Bitcoin's inception back in 08, right? Like after that GFC style event. Would you say the macro perspective this time is so far distant from previous cycles that it may affect the current crypto cycle continuing to play out? Or you know, has that sort of, from your perspective, changed at all? It's different. It's definitely different this time. I think for those that have been following the space, the tendency is just to rely on cycle analysis that is simple rinse and repeat. And there's definitely sort of a temporal pattern, a cyclicality to markets, which does rinse and repeat over time, but we are in a different cycle. Clearly, the Federal Reserve, because of the degree of the liquidity that they pumped into the system, the degree in which government's deficit spended back in 2020 because of the outsized approach to the COVID situation, created a need or a necessity for the central banks to tighten as fast as they did and to try and maintain the rates as high as they are for an extended period of time. And we just haven't seen that in the in the crypto markets, 2008 was the inception. It's been loose monetary policy up until really the start of 2022. Yeah, and so you know it is dovetailing into a halving cycle. So it's elong. It's you know the tightening phase this time around is longer. It's more severe. But ultimately, the backdrop, despite the rhetoric from central bankers, is that you know the global monetary system cannot endure long periods of deflation. Mm. And so with federal deficits growing as large as they are in the US, the situation that we're seeing in Japan, you're already starting to see sort of signs that at some point in the next, I don't know, I'll put a number around it or a time frame around it, six to 24 months, mm. a return to some normalization where you know normalization in the current environment is debasement yeah. through liquidity or cutting rates, yeah, we'll return to that. Yeah. You talk about debasement there, you mean the strength of that, let's say in this point, the paradigm of the US dollar, that's sort of taken a bit of a tumble. Is that what you mean there? Debasement is just in the form of the money supply increasing. You know, the system can't handle long periods of deflation, especially in the collateral of the system, which is essentially US debt. So who's going to buy that debt? That's the question. Rates are attractive at the moment, and there's definitely investor appetite for rates at over 5%. But the degree of spending or the degree of interest payments of the US government needs to service now, I think will require the Federal Reserve to become a buyer of US debt again. Of the debt again. Yep. Yep. That's an interesting narrative. I think it's going to be an amazing one to watch play out, especially going into the good old fashioned election year. That's always good fun as well. But I mean, just to tie back to something you said a bit earlier about the US liquidity conditions improving. I mean, if you were to break that down quite simply, what would you say has improved from that perspective, just for our listeners that, that may just sort of follow this on a surface level? Yeah, I mean, the word liquidity gets thrown around all the time, and it's this sort of conceptual term. And there's lots of different ways that you can analyze liquidity. And you can, I mean, everyone who looks at it has a sort of different take on it. The way I sort of think about it is you've got to look at, firstly, the balance sheets of all the central banks, right? Is Are they expanding or contracting? At the moment, they're contracting. Then you look at credit creation coming from the banks, and you can sort of analyze that through the changes in M2 money supply, which you know is a broad indicator for deposits at the banks and checking accounts and savings accounts, currency and circulation and so forth. The other aspect is like the interest rate itself, right? The price as that goes higher, usually pulls money out of risk assets into fixed income assets mm-hmm. for a guaranteed rate of return. And then you can also look at it through the lens of volatility. 
right? So one measure is looking at, which I think is important and probably doesn't get discussed in that much, is the volatility of US treasuries. If the volatility in that market is going up, that's something that the Federal Reserve is hypersensitive to. Yeah, right. And at the moment, it's actually, you know, we've got really tight conditions in terms of the price of money, the interest rates are going higher, bond yields are exploding higher. And the central bank or the, the Federal Reserve, for all intents and purposes, is still tightening, although they came to the rescue of the banks back in March and created a facility which was essentially printing money. So they've got this one on the one hand, you know, they're doing QT, but they hey, they're bailing out the banks with their underwater bonds, underwater treasuries. It's a good time, wasn't it? That's offsetting, you know, some of that tightening. But the interesting thing is that the volatility in the treasury market, which was really extreme at the start of the year, has been coming down. And corporate spreads have been coming down as well. So you've got this really weird situation where on the surface it looks tight, but actually some things have improved. Yeah. Do you still think that's manufactured? Do you think that was always part of like the, the roadmap, I would say? Look, I don't know, to be honest. I, I do think that the Federal Reserve essentially knows what they're doing. I think they always have contingencies in place. Yeah. So it's, it's like that famous quote from, was it Yellen that said, we'll never see an 08 style collapse ever again, just because they can simply just turn the printers on. Do you think that's yeah. what holds true? Like they've always got a plan? I think from 2008, they understand uh, the the blueprint Mm. better. That doesn't mean that there is, you know, there aren't consequences of the policies that they enact. You know, that was a situation that they probably do everything within their power and they do have, you know, quite a lot of leverage over the system to make ensure that that doesn't happen again. But the end result of that is continual debasement. Yeah. Yeah, great. So just continuing with this theme of the macroeconomic climate, um, obviously we've got the Bitcoin halving coming up around April next year. Typically, in previous cycles, that's been followed by a bull market in the crypto market. Do you see, with the current macro climate, uh, a bull market happening in 2024? Look, I think it's likely that the halving will dovetail into you know a reversal or, or a um, improving liquidity situation at some point in 2024. I think the, the you know the one thing that I sort of track is not just the levels, whether it's the size of the balance sheet or size of M2 growth, but it's the rate of change. Mm-hmm. So if that rate of change starts to slow, and you know this was actually a very good indicator for last year because I turned bullish on the crypto space in Q4, and it was because the, I mean we were still not getting any you know the rhetoric from the from the central banks at that time from most central banks, and mainly the Fed was that you know it was higher for longer rate hikes were still mm-hmm. expected over the next sort of six to twelve months. But in terms of the rate of change, like those initial hikes, those aggressive hikes in 2022, which really put the market on the back foot, they started to slow. And when you start to see that rate of change start to slow down at bottom, you usually get the major bottoms form in risk assets. We saw that this year. But then, you know, after the Q2 period where the Federal Reserve sort of came to the rescue and offered that facility for um, US banks where there was a, a lot of stress, the, the liquidity uh, environment started to roll over again. And since then, we really haven't seen, you know, we've seen risk assets sort of go sideways, sideways and down. Yeah, it's interesting. Like from a crypto perspective, I think with halving, there's less sell pressure because the miners have you know less rewards to to sell themselves. What are your thoughts on the ETF? Do you think that's going to create enough demand to really push the Bitcoin price higher? Ultimately, in the long term, most certainly. Uh, it just provides a conduit for institutions, private wealth that were not comfortable, or you know, from a fiduciary standpoint couldn't invest via the vehicles that were, you know, available before an ETF. Yep. 
So I do think it creates, you know, that structural demand for the asset. And I think, you know, it's very hard to see even with that in place, if conditions remain tight or if they deteriorate, you know, whether we'll see a massive pump in Bitcoin price. I think liquidity trumps everything right now, but the setup for an ETF, you know, having spotty ETFs approved in the US provides the vehicle for more investors to come into the space when that liquidity environment improves. Yeah, because it's been interesting to see like Amsterdam were the first to obviously officially get that spot ETF off the ground. I mean, I don't know if you've been able to track it. Do you, do you know what the adoption rate's been like for that product? Uh, well, there's been ETPs, exchange traded products in Europe for six years, six or seven years. I don't have the numbers to hand. There's been mild take up in Europe with those products. But yeah, I mean, most of the pent up demand is, is now sitting in the US. Mm. And that's the greatest export, I guess, right? All those products. It's what uh, us Aussies like as well, the iTrust ETFs. Uh, from or, Europe or? The US, sorry, I meant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been, you can see in the Australian market that the demand for the ETFs have been pretty paltry. Okay. You know, they have listed, I think they listed in 2022. And obviously, it might have been, I'm just trying to think, it was 2021, 2022. But in any case, they've, they've really come into existence during a bear market. But even still, I would say that the appetite for the product has been pretty low. Yeah. Some ETFs listed in Hong Kong, and there's now a couple. You know, the interest there has not been as high as perhaps some people would have thought. So, again, I, I think that's why I sort of come back to it as much as it's great to hype up the Bitcoin ETF product and the story and what it means, which I think is definitely bullish long term. I think liquidity trumps everything. Yeah. And I mean, on that same line of thinking, this is just interesting to get again off the cuff if you don't have the data, but. From an ETF perspective, or even just like investment vehicles in general, from what you guys are seeing at Bloomberg, would you see just general interest and sentiment across the board? Like, unless you're an experienced or pragmatic investor, you're just seeing less interest across the board, crypto agnostic? Yeah, or crypto apathy. Your crypto apathy, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it definitely. Um, that's just reality. There's, as I said, there's still things going on which make me quite positive and optimistic long term, but this year is quieter than last year. Yeah, we haven't had any blowups this year, which is which is nice. That's nice. It's a good change of pace. There still might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably shouldn't have said that out loud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, taking the macro climate out of it for a second, I mean, this is where I think someone like yourself would be quite valuable. There's a lot of projects, a lot of fundamental plays that are being touted as the next you know, iterative generation of crypto adoption and blockchain usage across the world. Is there anything that you're sort of seeing in the space that is showing significant advancement? I mean, for me personally, I feel like a big milestone in the space was the implementation of DeFi and seeing that flourish. Do you feel like there's a big narrative behind the next generation of blockchain adoption from what you're seeing from your research? I still think that apart from stable coins, I don't yet see the killer app mm -hmm. yet within the space. I have this view that we've taken the last three or four years to build the infrastructure. Same way as the telecommunications industry laid the cables and, you know, invested heavily in the infrastructure of, you know, mobile networks and in the extension of the internet, you know, from the 1990s, we've done that in, in crypto and in blockchains, but there isn't yet a non-stable coin application yet, which has the potential to take it from 5 million daily active users, which is currently at, to 20, 30, 40. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't great opportunities within the space. And if and whenever that next big thing comes, um, there certainly will be. 
and you know stable coins and you know bitcoin and ethereum with our strong monetary policies do make interesting asset allocation choices for institutions but yeah there's a lack of breakthrough success yet in the space you know that's just me being sort of pragmatic and not being too married to anything hopium yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jamie, we saw ANZ, like a story recently with ANZ partnering up with uh, Chainlink for their own stablecoin. You mentioned stablecoins as one of the the categories in crypto that's really, you know, we're seeing like real world adoption there. Do you see any other categories like kind of in that space? Like, do you see tokenization of real world assets being a big sort of sector in the years to come? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting area and it's an area I want to dig into a lot more. I think stablecoins is, you know, fascinating. It's I keep sort of beating the drum on stablecoins because it really has product market fit, right? Mm-hmm. There is huge swath of the global population that are unbanked, that don't have a currency in which they can save in. And as much as Bitcoin has the properties of very strong money, sound money, whatever you want to call it, best money ever invented, it is still a technological and educational jump. Yeah. For those people in those in those countries, or those areas, to perhaps invest in Bitcoin. But the idea of having a US-backed stablecoin is, you know, such a great sort of intermediate step for these for these folks. And, you know, the number of people which is the addressable market there is, you know, billions potentially. Mm-hmm. But the the real world asset side of things is fascinating as well. And we're just starting to see the signs of well, yielding stable coins, you know, back to where yeah, at the moment. You know, Tether is one of the most profitable companies on the planet just by issuing a stable coin and it collects all the spread yeah. from the from the treasuries. Yeah. And so obviously that wouldn't, you know, in a free market, which is one of the reasons why I enjoy being in this space, is that you've got a real free market, not like most of the industries. Yeah. And, you know, there's a company making super normal profits and there are now other companies moving in and they will arbitrage that profit away over time and give to the investors or the holders of that stablecoin, the new forms of stablecoins, the interest from the treasury holdings that the issuer has. So that I think is actually, that's a really big and exciting area for the space. And that could, you know, like stablecoins are already doing a great job of proliferating blockchains around the world, but that new product, you know, will further that. So yeah, I want to get into sort of more of the real and assets side of things and tokenization. I think it's around half a billion dollars now that's been tokenized up from say a hundred billion at the start of the year, if I remember yeah, well. correctly. Mm-hmm. So it's growing pretty fast. It's mm-hmm. extremely small relative to everything else, but it is the thing that gets the TradFi investors really excited, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. most of the banks are sort of building some tokenization platform or um, teams to try and get into that space. So I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty. Well, I just want to strip it back for this last question. Are there any projects right now or cryptocurrencies that you have your eye on? I'd love to be able to just expand um, coverage from outside of Ethereum into some of the other L1s, just because I think, you know, I don't see a world in which Ethereum is 100% of the market share, but they are certainly dominating at this point. So it'd be interesting to see which of those other L1s have the characteristics or the capabilities to potentially you know, five for number two, number three in, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of issues and a lot of problems with the entire space that does need to get cleaned up. And some of the research, which I can't really talk about too much because I've not written about it, but there is so many anomalies in the space around the distribution and issuance of the tokens from protocols. And, you know, the insiders selling or not adhering to their vesting schedules. Um, right. 
that makes the space uninvestable, I think, for most institutions. Yeah, no one really cares about that. Yeah, it's something that I, I do want to write a little bit more about in the coming sort of weeks and months. So maybe next time I, I'm on with you guys, I can elaborate a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. But I think, you know, these sort of things need to get cleared up. What we're seeing is, um, I think, from like newsworthy items on some of those L1s, which I think is interesting, is the fact that, you know, Circle has issued the USDC stablecoin on Solana and Solana integrations into merchants as a payment mechanism is growing. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, that is not a recommendation or a sort of call on Solana, but it's validation that some of the other blockchains are gaining traction with the traditional financial world because it's yep. been such an Ethereum dominated space. And I think, you know, that's particularly interesting. But yeah, like the big problem other than what I just mentioned is the inflation rates. You know, you have to you have to think about these assets in terms of supply and demand. And the supply equation with most of these L1s, you know, is running at sort of, you know, their inflation rates are anywhere between three at the best. Up to like eight to 10%, right? 20%. 20 um, yeah. I don't know where Cosmos is these days, but I, I, last time I checked was like pretty 15, up there. 16. Yeah. 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 You know, that's very hard. Unless they change some sort of governance thing where with transactions, they still burn. But I mean, even then still you're hoping and banking on some sort of governance pivot for these things to be less inflationary. Yeah. Yeah. The tokenomics policy is absolutely critical. Mm. Yeah. So it's tough. Yeah. What are your thoughts on like, you know, the SEC going after a lot of these layer ones, basically labeling them as securities? Look, I, I think it's nuanced, right? So like, I, I don't really don't fall down on the same side as the SEC on a lot of things, but the problem the industry has faced is that they left to their own devices. They have not exhibited, always exhibited the best actions or the best practice approaches to a lot of things. And so there has been numerous examples of insiders dumping on retail, even in some of the highest profile projects. And the things that I just mentioned, whether that means that they're deemed to be securities or not, I'm just more interested in, in seeing this industry grow up and start to adhere to best practices. And I always look back at the uh, proposal made by Hester Pierce from the SEC back in 2020, where she proposed, you know, safe harbor for the industry by bringing in some very light touch requirements around disclosures that protocols had to make around, you know, how much is owned by the insiders, making sure that the white paper is, you know, published in, in an external repository where all white papers are made, you know, there's, there's things that would have in the last three years helped move the industry forward, but because it's been left to its own devices, it is in a lot of cases not done the right thing by investors and there's a lot of unscrupulous people still involved Mm. and that just overshadows the immense opportunity and potential of decentralized networks so just a few bad apples but that spoils it for everyone so whilst i don't agree with the technical definitions in some instances from the regulators around what's the security i think and the other thing to add here is i could just make a quick segue is like no one cares about whether things are a security or not anywhere outside of the US. This is just a US specific thing. What other regulators and jurisdictions really care about is investor protections, transparency. And so you're starting to see that in the European regulations and other jurisdictions. So I just want to see some of these protocols start to maybe self-regulate and try and bring together a collective of other protocols to try and develop standards while you've got this sort of absenteeism from the SEC, really. Mm and US legislators fighting and, and taking maybe years to get something legislated. 
that's a good point. It's a good chance for them to sort of unite and just get the job done. If they know it's a problem, why not address it, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty, well, we might leave it there, guys. Thank you so much, Jamie, for sharing your insights with our listeners. Hopefully, we can have you on again soon and we can get an update on the market and the macro climate and everything. So thanks a lot, man. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. And Ted, for you, go Broncos. Yeah. Go, go the Broncos. <laughs> thanks, guys. Very good. Bye, now. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon. 